Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audio selections, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally have read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 70 of History of the Marine Corps, The Gilded Age, Part 2. Our last episode discussed the most inactive time in the Marine Corps. There wouldn't be a major war for another 30 years, and the United States experienced a rapid growth. Marines wouldn't see many of these benefits directly, but they had the opportunity to travel the world. Uniforms were changed to the ones we're familiar with today, formal training was enforced, and additional weapons were added to the Marines' arsenal. This week explores a few expeditions to South America, including the Panama Canal. We dive into some significant changes to the Marine Corps, which includes appointing John Philip Sousa as the leader of the Marine Band and the formal adoption of the Marine Corps motto. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. While many Marines were in the Far East supporting U.S. and naval missions, a large Marine force supported operations in Latin America. During the beginning of the Gilded Age, the U.S. Navy had to survey multiple locations for an interoceanic canal. Three Marine officers and 60 enlisted helped in the survey of the Darien Gap, home of some of the most dangerous jungles on the border of Colombia and Panama. In 1821, Panama won its independence from Spain and joined the Republic of Gran Colombia. There were tensions between the nations that were part of this republic. In response to those tensions, riots, rebellions, and insurrections happened frequently. In 1846, the U.S. and New Granada, which is modern-day Colombia and Panama, signed the Bidlack Treaty. This treaty gave the U.S. the right-of-way across a narrow strip of land of Panama. In return, the U.S. will guarantee neutrality for the area and the sovereignty of New Granada. Securing this area with respect for the treaty was difficult for the United States. This area was so fragile, the Navy sent ships to protect traveling U.S. vessels even during the Civil War. The tensions escalated between the political factions which eventually resulted in the rebel faction leader being captured and imprisoned. The new rebel leader of Panama set up a government of his own. 
But local Colombian troops did not recognize the new government and launched an attack on Panama's forces. Rear Admiral Steedman arrived on the Pensacola and he began working with the American consul. If needed, they agreed to intervene after an agreed-upon signal, which was planned for that night. A detachment of sailors and marines were sent to shore and guarded key places throughout the city. This show of force was enough to end the conflicts, and after a couple of days, the factions agreed to stop attacks. Peace was restored, and after 10 days, marines and sailors boarded the U.S. ships. But the ceasefire only lasted for about five months. The same faction that launched the initial attack raised another military, consisting of a few hundred men, and attacked the city again. This time, they launched an attack that continuously fired on the city for 10 days, but defenses managed to hold the faction off. A landing force of 110 sailors and marines were sent to protect the railroad property. They also trained guards to help with the defense. The following day, more marines and sailors were sent to shore to protect the American consulate. Again, just the presence of marines and sailors was enough to de-escalate the situation. And in about two weeks, U.S. troops headed back to their ships. This scenario went on for the next few years. As you all know, the Panama Canal links the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and it is extremely important for international trade and military transport. Although the United States would be the country that completed this arduous project, they weren't the country that started it. The French Canal Company began the project in 1881. By the end of 1884, they made significant progress digging through the thick rainforest. While the French were excavating, factions continued their attacks, and local governments fell apart. Colombia's government collapsed and the United States felt that it was time to intervene. Several naval vessels were sent to Cologne and Panama to help. The Alliance was the first ship to arrive, and Marines were sent to shore on January 18, 1885. Again, their mission was to protect the railway. But conditions slowly started to worsen and the rebels had a leader that would organize the forces this time. By March, the rebels had control of Cologne and the entire railroad. The USS Galena soon arrived to provide more assistance, and a Marine detachment under the command of 2nd Lieutenant Charles A. Doyen was sent to shore to guard the American consulate. There was serious rioting happening throughout the country and even the British sent in reinforcements of 70 troops to help protect the transitway. During the uprising, rebels took the city of Cologne, and several buildings were set on fire. The situation grew out of control, and the few landing parties on shore could do little to stop the takeover. As soon as the United States heard of the burning at Cologne, an order was given to organize a large expeditionary force for duty on the isthmus. The Secretary of the Navy ordered the Marines from all shore stations on the east coast of the United States and ships not in the area to report for duty in Panama. A Marine battalion made up of 10 officers and 212 enlisted assembled in New York under Lieutenant Colonel Charles Haywood, and they left for Panama on April 3rd. A second battalion of Marines, 
consisting of 15 officers and 250 enlisted under Captain John H. Higsby, sailed from the same location four days later. Commander Bowman H. McCalla oversaw the entire expedition. By the time the two battalions of Marines arrived, multiple naval vessels surrounded the isthmus. The Shenandoah sent a battalion consisting of one company of Marines and two companies of sailors, one serving as infantry and one as artillery. The United States first established defensive positions at railway property. Another landing force from the Tennessee was sent to Cologne and they set up defenses on the railroad. U.S. protection of the railways helped minimize the threat and soon after defenses were in position, transit was operational again. Haywood's battalion arrived on April 11th and they quickly took over the protection of the city. One company of Haywood's Marines and a detachment of sailors were sent to the Medicine for duty. The purpose of this detached duty was to make sure the railroad re-established its normal train service. The remaining Marines arrived four days later. They formed a small brigade under Colonel Haywood. Higsby's battalion was responsible for guarding multiple important points in Colon. His Marines relieved the American troops who were temporarily guarding those positions. McCalla organized another railway battalion, made up of one company of Marines and two sections of Gatling guns operated by sailors. They provided guards that would serve on the train for daily trips between Cologne and Panama. The additional Marine battalions were sent to towns along the railroad for protection. Haywood established a headquarters in Panama, but the city wasn't necessarily safe for the colonel. The rebels in the city built barricades in the streets, which cut off paths and increased the danger. It also increased the Marines' chances of being incinerated alive if the faction decided to set fire to the city again. By this time, the Colombian government had managed to regain some control and organized troops to help protect Panama. They wanted control of the city. On April 20th, a force of Colombian troops pulled up to a nearby port. McCalla ordered Bravo and Delta Company of the 2nd Battalion of Marines as reinforcements. A detachment armed with Gatling guns and artillery was sent as provisional battalions. The Shenandoah also sent a detachment of Marines to help. The faction continued to stand up barricades in the city, which made the organization of U.S. forces more difficult. The rebels in the city were well defended, and a report came in that 700 Colombian troops were approaching Panama. Admiral Jouet was a senior naval officer present. He was concerned that the scenario of rebels burning the town would happen again so he ordered the city to be guarded by U.S. troops. Two more companies of Marines from Cologne, along with the support from some sailors, took up a defense in Panama. Despite U.S. forces gaining control of the area, the Department of State and the Department of the Navy did not agree with the occupation of Panama. They ordered an immediate evacuation, and the city was turned over to the dominant force. This decision was embarrassing for McCalla, but he eventually turned over control to the Colombians. Soon after the Colombians were established, U.S. forces began their evacuation. By May 21st, 
only a small detachment of Marines remained. By 1888, the French Canal Company collapsed due to rampant corruption and mismanagement, and the project was canceled by the French shortly after. Marines helped with rebels in Uruguay, Mexico, Haiti, and a few other places south of the U.S. Combined with the extensive trips in the Far East, Marines were constantly traveling. However, the inspection reports from the time showed that morale was typically good. Good but not perfect. There were a few southern posts that were constantly sick and battling yellow fever. In 1872, every branch, including the Marine Corps, suffered many desertions due to unlivable barracks conditions, little pay, and insufficient rations. But besides those shortcomings, there were some improvements. Punishments were less severe. The U.S. military didn't use corporal punishment as much. In 1882, the Department of the Navy disapproved of the practice of using solitary confinement on bread and water as punishment for a court-martial. It was also strictly forbidden to give a Marine extra guard duty as punishment. So just based on my experience of being a Marine, I could tell you that the Marine Corps no longer forbids giving Marine extra guard duty as punishment. There were a few times I had extra guard duty. A typical summary court-martial punishment for a century for drunkenness and deserting his post without being relieved was confinement for two months and loss of three months' pay, which was about $54. For an enlisted Marine found guilty of desertion by a general court-martial, they were, quote, to be confined for one year in such place as the Honorable Secretary of the Navy may designate, to have fastened to his left leg a chain four feet long to which is to be attached a ball weighing 12 pounds, to do general police duty during the term of confinement, to forfeit $10 per month of his pay amounting to $120 during such a confinement, and to be dishonorably discharged from the U.S. Marine Corps, unquote. Jacob Zeiland served as a commandant until November 1, 1876. He retired and Charles G. McCauley, who served in the Mexican and Civil War, was selected to take his place. He was promoted to Colonel Commandant when he took the position. His legacy still lives on with adopting the Marine Corps model. Albeit more traditional than official, the Marine Corps had three models before 1883. The first being Fortitudine, or Fortitudine, depending on how you pronounce it. The former seems to be the appropriate pronunciation, which meant with fortitude. The second was by sea and by land, and the third was to the shores of Tripoli. In 1883, Macaulay officially adopted Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. He selected Semper Fidelis because, quote, Marines have lived up to this model as proven by the fact that there has never been a mutiny or even the thought of one amongst U.S. Marines, unquote. Although it's been 138 years, this model has profound meaning for most Marines today. Every Marine uses it. I've been out of the Marine Corps for 15 years, and I say Semper Fi every time I see a Marine. Those two words can serve as an entire conversation between those two Marines. That's one hell of a legacy to leave behind. Macaulay was also a great leader, 
and he made some important advancements in the Corps, the majority of which took place after the Spanish-American War. A conflict will be getting into soon. This time in U.S. naval history saw a big growth in naval vessels. In 1883, four cruisers were appropriated, and the construction for multiple other ships continued until the outbreak of the Spanish-American War. By 1898, the Navy had a respectable force of modern naval vessels. Large detachments of Marines, consisting of 50 or more, were assigned to each of the larger ships. The Gilded Age period was one of the most uneventful in the history of the Marine Corps. The country had slowly lost interest in the Marine, and the United States brushed the branch to the side to make way for national development. To be fair, they did this to every military branch. There were a few exceptions. The Marines' actions in Asia caused some pride and support from U.S. citizens, and their actions in Latin America served as one of the Marines' most important functions during the time. Typically, militaries will experience some deterioration during such a large period of peace. The Marine Corps had a little of that, but when the U.S. and Spain went to war, the Corps immediately returned to its old fighting self. Thirty years before the U.S. declared war, Cuba launched its first revolution against Spain. This conflict was known as the Ten-Year War, and the purpose of this revolution was to gain freedom. The Ten-Year War took place a few years after the U.S. Civil War. As we covered, the Civil War was a violent time for the United States, and the American public wasn't interested in getting involved in another conflict. So the decision was made to stay out of it. However, on February 15, 1898, the USS Maine arrived in Havana Harbor to ensure American citizens in Cuba were safe. When the ship arrived, it suffered a massive explosion, killing 260 out of the 355 on board, including 28 Marines. The ship was destroyed. Although the cause of the explosion was unknown, the public assumed it was the Spanish who attacked. The assumption came primarily from the media, and multiple newspapers blamed Spain and labeled them as Spanish murderers. President William McKinley did not officially declare Spain was responsible for the attack, but he did ask Congress for an additional $50 million to help build up defenses. In March, the U.S. Navy concluded that the ship's powder magazines ignited due to an external explosion set off under the ship's hull. Spain also conducted an independent investigation and produced a report stating the opposite, that the explosion happened within the ship. The exact cause of the explosion is still unknown. There have been a few studies throughout the years. Some say the explosion was external, some say it's internal. The latest study was released in 1976 by a team of U.S. naval investigators. They concluded that the explosion was likely internal, caused by a fire that ignited its ammunition stocks. But regardless of the conflicting reports, the American public at the time sided with the conclusion that a mine most likely caused the explosion. Spain was extremely violent with Cuba. Thousands of Cubans were forced into concentration areas guarded by Spanish troops. The concentration camps didn't have basic sanitation, food, and shelter. 
the punishment for refusing to move to these areas was death. The relationship between the U.S. and Cuba was different than today, and the American public had a lot of sympathy for Cubans. U.S. citizen anger translated into Congress supporting a war with Spain. They enacted the Teller Amendment on April 20, 1898, which placed a condition on the U.S. military presence in Cuba. The amendment stated that the U.S. could not annex Cuba, and it will leave control of the island to its people. President McKinley had decided to declare war, but he sent a fleet to the Philippines before he did. There, the Spanish held most of its naval vessels. The Marine Corps saw a lot of growth during this time. Ten years before the war ended, the Corps' strength grew almost four times in size. The Navy had been modernized right before the war kicked off, and they were well prepared for naval warfare. On May 4, 1898, Congress passed the Naval Appropriation Act, which increased the authorized strength of the Marine Corps. The act approved an additional 473, quote, seamen, landsmen, or boys, unquote, for permanent service, almost a 20% increase, bringing the total number of Marines to 3,073. The act broke down the Corps' enlisted strength by rank and authorized, quote, not more than 60 gunnery sergeants with the rank of first sergeants, not more than 80 corporals, and not more than 1,500 privates. Unquote. For officers, Congress authorized an additional 43 lieutenants. Three enlisted Marines were commissioned to lieutenants, while the remaining 40 came directly from recruits. It also outlined pay for troops and a per diem structure for officers while traveling under orders in the United States and abroad. The act also authorized the rank of the commandant to be raised to brigadier general. The end of the Gilded Age brought some big changes to the Marine Corps. The use of steam-powered vessels eliminated the need for Marines to be stationed as sharpshooters in the ship's riggings. Marines also began to see more of the world, including the Arctic, Greenland, Alaska, Korea, China, Haiti, and many South American countries. At home, Marines helped authorities with destroying illegal distilleries, and enforcing revenue laws. They were sent to Boston to help maintain law and order after the city sustained substantial damage from a fire. Marines commanded by future Commandant Charles Haywood also supported the army in nine states after a railroad strike caused labor riots. From 1876 to 1891, the 8th Commandant of the Marine Corps, Charles McCauley, made significant changes to the Corps some of which still exist today. In 1880, he appointed John Philip Sousa as the leader of the Marine Band. Under Sousa's leadership, the Marine Band developed into one of the world's best musical groups. In 1882, Macaulay started a program of having new Marine officers appointed from graduates of the Naval Academy. This accomplishment was a big advantage to the addition of Marine Corps officers, and from 1883 to 1898, 50 officers came from the Naval Academy. Macaulay also established a training program for enlisted that was aligned with current tactics of the time 
and made several recommendations for remedial legislation to help bring in more enlisted troops. This legislation made it more attractive for Marines to make a career out of serving in the Corps. Macaulay retired in 1891, and Colonel Charles Haywood took his place, becoming the ninth Commandant of the Marine Corps. Haywood continued to grow the Marine Corps and established a system of examination of officers for promotion. He also created a system of officer schools. Haywood was a big supporter of enlisted training and focused on target practice and marksmanship. He adopted the Good Conduct Medal, also known as the Good Cookie by Marines today. Marine post increased from 12 to 21 under Haywood's command, one of which was located at Port Royal, South Carolina, and would later be known as Paris Island, one of the most important training centers for Marine recruits. The three commandants made a lot of improvements to the Corps. Congress raised many questions on why Marines were needed since sharpshooters were no longer necessary for naval vessels. Haywood played a pivotal role in preventing the Marine Corps from disbanding. His foresight in the benefits of training helped his argument, and when the war with Spain broke out in 1898, the Corps was made up of Marines who were well-prepared and ready to fight. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get into the Spanish-American War. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Path Between the Seas, The Creation of the Panama Canal, 1870-1914, by David McAuliffe. This book dives deep into the creation of the Panama Canal. Before this episode, I was familiar with the high-level milestones of the Panama Canal, but I wasn't aware of much of the detailed history. This book goes deep, and the author does a fantastic job explaining the details while keeping the story entertaining. It focuses on engineering accomplishments, medical breakthroughs, and politics of building one of the most important routes for maritime trade. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.